Today we start a new series and it's based upon the book of Daniel. And I was inspired by Chris Hodges' book, The Daniel Dilemma. And I've asked Jen if she would stock the resource centre with this particular book so that many of you can get it in your hands and you can read it. Jen leads a book club and so their book club is going to be doing this book. But if you want a good read, please, please, please get a hold of this book. It's going to bless you. It's going to encourage you. It's going to help you. And uh, it's also the book that's inspired me to do this series and our team of preachers will be sharing on this particular uh, series called Daniel. It's Daniel, how to stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise. How to stand firm. If there is ever a generation that needs to stand firm, it's this generation. But not just stand firm, but also to love well in a culture of compromise. Compromise And Daniel is an incredible book that highlights how we can do just that, how we can stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise. And today's part one, I've simply subtitled Stand Out. Everyone shout out at me, Stand Out. Fantastic. Let's turn to the book of Daniel, reading from chapter one and verse one. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoahim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God. Notice the word God there is small g. His God, small g. I like that. Um, uh, In the house of God. Then the king ordered Ashpenath, chief of the court's officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were enter the king's service. Among those that were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. A little bit of background about what is going on here. King Nebuchadnezzar was from Babylon and he reigned from 605 BC to 562 BC. Babylon is a city in ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern day Iraq. And in AD, or sorry, BC 589, King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. And some three years later, he left Jerusalem in a state of ruin and he burned down the temple. And there he decided to pick the best of the people of Judah and bring them with him to Babylon, where they would be trained and indoctrinated with Babylonian culture, where they would be trained in the ways of the king, And there they would serve as leaders 
and governors. And so Daniel and his friends found themselves in a foreign culture. Everyone say foreign culture. And what we're going to find out through reading the book of Daniel is that Daniel teaches us that when you're in a foreign culture, you can stand strong for God, even though you're in an unfamiliar setting and surrounding. In actual fact, Daniel not only stood strong and loved well in that culture, but he also influenced the culture in which he lived. You see, you and I are not here just to be right, but we are called to be effective. For us just to stand in the mall, Rundle Mall, and tell people that they are bad people going to hell is not the way we are going to influence and affect our culture. It's not enough to be right. We have to be effective. And Daniel teaches us how we can do just that. You see, the enemy wants to integrate us into culture so that the world can't tell the difference. But we need to be a company of people that stand out even though we're in a foreign culture. And what chapter 1 teaches us is it outlines three things that culture will try to do to us today. And in order to stand firm and to love well in a culture of compromise, we must look at a few things. And I want to look at three things that we can learn from the life of Daniel and his friends when it comes to standing firm and living well in a culture of compromise. The first thing is simply this. You ready? Write this down. Number one, you've got to know who you are. If we're going to stand firm and live, or sorry, love well in a culture of compromise, we must first know who we are. Why? Because culture will try to rename you. you know, I want you to get this. Culture will try to rename you. You see, God had in mind who you are and what He wanted you to do from before the beginning of time. God had a plan and a purpose for your life. In other words, you were created on purpose for a purpose. And what the enemy wants to do is to distort the purpose on your life through causing confusion around your identity. We saw in the news just last night that uh, there, was, uh, all the, uh, there were all these um, credit cards um, just uh, found where someone had uh, grabbed them all and uh, they were guilty of identity theft. And the biggest identity thief there is, is the enemy. He wants to rob you of who God called you and created you to be. He's an identity theft. So you need a thief. So you need to know who you are if we're going to stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise. The name Daniel, which was Daniel's Hebrew name, means this. It means God is my judge. And he was given a new Babylonian name and that name was Belshazzar. Now get this, this is what Belshazzar means. It means lady, protect the king. Isn't it amazing that here's this young man that was given a Hebrew name that means God is my judge. And he goes into a new culture and they tried to rename him. And it's a derogatory name because it means lady, protect the king. Yeah. And it's interesting because of the day and generation in which we live with gender confusion, it is nothing new. 
This happened some 2,600 years ago and the issue of gender confusion is still up front and centre. And here's this young man. And the reason he was picked is because he was handsome and because he was well built and because he was smart and because he was able to read situations and circumstances well. So they picked him because he was really good, because he was a standout. And then the moment they bring him into his culture, they try to bring him down with a derogatory name. You need to know who you are when people call you by another name. You can't go to school and you can't go to a university without some people throwing names your way. And they're names to bring you down. And we need to know who we are when those names come our way. Because if we don't know who we are, we're not going to stand our ground. Hananiah, one of Daniel's friends, that was his Hebrew name. And it means God is a good God. And he was given a new Babylonian name, Shadrach, which means I am afraid of God. Isn't it amazing? He grew up in a culture where truth was shared. God is a good God. Every time His name was mentioned, it was a reminder of just how good God is. And he goes into this foreign culture and they give him a new name. And it's one that says, I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of God. Uh, we started this year with a series called Crowned with Goodness. And it was combating this very thought because in many people's minds, people do not believe that God is a good God. If God was a good God, why do so many bad things happen? I wanna tell you, God is indeed a good God. And we have to know who we are when it comes to the culture and the circumstances and the surroundings that we find ourselves in. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. You see, the goal of church is not to come to church. But the goal of church is that we might learn, that we might grow, that we might change, that we might have our brains washed again. Because whether you know it or not, all of us in this room are brainwashed. You can't go to school, university, the workplace, the shopping mall. You can't watch television or listen to the radio without getting your minds washed with something. And when we come to church, we get our minds washed with the Word of God, reminding us every time we walk through those doors that we are children of the living God, that God is a good God, that God alone is our judge. And we wash our minds. It's why we read our Bible. We don't read our Bible just to read our Bible for reading our Bible's sake. No, we want to wash our minds with the Word of God to combat the culture in which we live. Are you with me today? And for all of us, myself included, have a next step to take. None of us have arrived. We all have something to learn. We all have something to do. We all have adjustments in our lives to make. And I'm so grateful to be part of what I saw over the last few days at Winter Project. It was so, I had an incredible opportunity to be able to share with our young people. So excited to see young people serving and worshipping God. Amazing, amazing privilege that a young group of people can grow up knowing who they are. That they are the pinnacle of all God's creation. That they are the apple of His eye. And so if someone has said over you that you are ugly, that you're a mistake, that you're an accident, I want to take that name off of you. And I want the Word of God to let it do its work in you today. That you might leave this place knowing who you are. Maybe the names will keep coming, 
But when the names come, if you know who you are, if you're grounded in who you are, it will be like water off a duck's back. Amen. And so when it comes to standing firm in a culture of compromise, the first thing we need to do is we need to know who we are. Secondly, we need to settle what you believe. We need to settle what it is that we believe. Why? Because culture will try to change your standards or convictions. Reading on in verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1, it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to, to defile himself this way. Note those first words. It says, Daniel resolved. Everyone say resolved. resolved. See, Daniel resolved to eat a certain way before all the choice food came out. You've you got to get this. He didn't wait for the food to come out, look at it and then make the decision. If you wait for all the good food to come out and then make the decision, your decision is probably going to be one you're going to regret. It's probably going to be one that says, uh, I'll have it all, thank you very much. By the time the wine and the cheese comes out, and the donuts and the chocolate comes out and the cake comes out. By the time all that stuff comes out, you, you, you know, you've already decided I've got to have it all. But it says Dave, uh, Daniel decided beforehand. It's what I call a pre-decision. We have to make some decisions before those decisions need to be made. It's what I call making a cool light of day decision. You don't want to make a decision in the heat of battle, nor in the heat of passion. Because if you make a decision in the heat of battle, you probably make a wrong one because you're tired and not thinking straight. If you make a decision in the heat of passion, you're probably not going to make the right decision because you're going to be led by your feelings. There was another young man in the Old Testament, his name was Joseph. And when Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him and take him to bed, he just ran away. I want to tell you, as a young man with testosterone flowing through your body, you don't make that decision in the heat of passion. I imagine Joseph made a decision. I do not want to defile myself. I want to live for God and I'm not going to sleep around. And so he made that decision in the cool light of day. And so in the moment of passion, he could just run. You can't wait till you're in the bedroom before you make that kind of decision. Because if you do, you're going to make the wrong decision decision. Are you with me today? And so you've got to make a pre-decision, a decision in the cool light of day. Otherwise, you're going to make the wrong decision. And Daniel resolved before all the food came out, I'm going to not defile myself with the king's food, with all the wine and the cheese and all the savoury food. Are there any savoury people out there? Savoury people? And then Daniel said, I'm not going to defile myself with all the cakes and donuts and chocolate. Are there any sweet people out there? Let's have a quick poll, shall we? Savory people, put your hands up. Sweet people, put your hands up. People who say, I'll have it all, put your hands up. Well, you definitely need to make a pre-decision. Otherwise, we're probably not going to look like we want to look in a few years' time. Are you with me? See, we need to live by principle, not pressure. We need to live by principle and not pressure. I remember many years ago, some of you heard this story, but as a young man, I resolved that I was never going to smoke a cigarette. 
I grew up in a home where one of my parents smoked, the other one didn't, and I just, I just didn't like it. And I decided in the cool light of day, not the heat of battle or the heat of pressure, but in the cool light, I'm just not going to smoke. But you can't make that decision and then go to primary school and high school without being tested. And I never forget at the age of eight years old, I found myself down the local gully uh, and there was a pipe that went from uh, under the road from one side of the gully to the other side of the gully. And it's amazing the things that we did as kids to entertain ourselves. We used to just, you know, run up and down that pipe and then we'd get our BMX bike and and we'd ride up and down that pipe and, and there'd always be that little bit of water in the bottom of the pipe and we'd be splashing each other and we'd be there for hours. This, this, was, before, this was before video games. You should try it sometime. It's called getting outdoors. It's amazing. It's really, it's a, it's a lot of fun. You should try it. And we used to you know, entertain ourselves for hours doing that. And I never forget uh, one particular day, I was down the gully with my friend, Darren Bentley. He lived at 20 Carroll Drive, four doors down the road from me. And we found ourselves down there, but his sister and her friends came. Now his sister was three years older than us, which meant that they were much bigger and stronger because girls are, particularly at that age, they just develop quicker and they were three, four years older. And so, you know, if, if they wanted to beat us up, they could have. <laughs> just saying. And I found myself uh, in this situation where they were all smoking. And uh, again, I was not happy about that moment. And I remember the pre-decision I made that I don't want to smoke. And so they offered me a cigarette and I said, no, I don't want to smoke, thanks. And I thought that might be enough, but they kept pressuring me. They kept pressuring me. But we want to live by principle, not pressure. And they kept pressuring me. And I remember as an eight-year-old, I said to them, I said, if you give me that cigarette, I'll throw it in the water. That little bit of water that's always in the pipe. And they kept pressuring me and pressuring me. So I ended up taking the cigarette. I'm eight years of age. The girl I took it was about 11. And she was bigger and stronger than me. And I took that cigarette and I threw it in the water. They were so mad with me because I kind of had thrown away the couple of cigarettes they'd stolen off their parents. They were really mad. And I thought, you know what? If you beat the living stuffing out of me, I don't really care right now because I've made a decision. I'm not going to smoke. Thankfully, they didn't beat me up, which I really appreciate because that would have been really embarrassing getting beaten up by a girl at that age. But uh, nevertheless, they didn't do that and they respected my decision. But that moment and that decision was not made in the moment. It was made by a pre-decision. If you jump ahead a few years to when I'm 16, I remember saying, I not only don't want to do uh, cigarettes, but I don't want to do drugs. And to be honest, the drug thing wasn't a real big issue for me because I kind of thought, you know, drugs is something that only happens in America. You know, it's kind of, I was pretty naive back then and drugs is only something that happens in America. And I, certainly my circle of friends never did drugs. But I was hanging out with my soccer mates one day and they said, let's come to my place for a, a, a video. So I said, I love videos. We'll, we'll see this film. Great. That was back in the days when we had VCRs and the VHS video tapes, remember those? Anyone buy a beta, Max? You, you got sucked into. We did that. We're told that beta is better. Um, it wasn't, not when you went to the video store, because when you went to the video store, there was a massive array of choice of films with VHS, and there was this tiny little section for beta. Like, you could pick you know, two films, Jaws 1 or Jaws 2. It's kind of like a really sad kind of uh, area in the video shops. But uh, we had these uh, videos, and I brought these videos around, and then much to my amazement, shock and disgust, they had these little plastic bags with what looked like grass clippings in it. I'm like, what the heck is that? And there's oh, this is marijuana and we were smoking it and I was so mad. 
I was so mad that, one, that drugs had got so close to me. And then that my friends were offering it to me. And again, I'm so glad I made a pre-decision because in that moment, I don't know what came over me, but I just got mad. I just got mad as heck. And I just started lifting my voice and shouting at all of them, saying, don't you dare bring this into my life. I just went crazy. I don't know what happened, you know, but what I do remember is no one smoked drugs that night and we watched the videos that I bought around the place and I left with a smile on my face, like, what was all that about? But again... I made a decision to live by principle and not pressure. Young people, make some good decisions in the cool light of day so that when pressure comes, and it always comes, you won't be led by pressure, but you'll make decisions based upon principle. When I was 18 years of age, I remember looking at many older people much older than me. People have been in church for many years. And to be honest, while I loved them, I just didn't like what I saw. And I remember thinking, man, I just don't want to end up like that. And I just wonder, as, as Daniel made these declarations, I wonder if his choice of eating certain foods was because of what he saw in the king's palace. Maybe he saw a, a lot of you know, people that uh, didn't have a lot of energy, weren't very healthy. And thought, I don't want that. And if that's the food that gets you like that, I'm just going to stay away from it. You know, I don't know what your background is. I don't know what homes you've grown in, but I do know this. A bad model can also serve as something that can help you make a good choice. So if you've had an absent father or an abusive father, you know what? You're in a prime position to make a good choice because you know what not to do. You know what your fathering or, or, or latter years, you know what it, not to look like. And so I want to encourage you when it comes to making these decisions to make a pre-decision. So when I was 18 years of age, I kind of developed a little bit of a life mantra for myself. And it's based around the whole holistic thinking of body, soul, and spirit. And I remember saying, what would this 18-year-old kid that hasn't been tainted by a lot of disappointments yet? Because I know disappointment is coming. You can't do life without a little bit of disappointment. And what could this naive, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kid say to a 35-year-old version of myself and a 40-year-old version of myself and a 45-year-old version of myself and a 50-year-old version of myself to keep me in line? And I came up with these three things. One, I wanted the body of a young man. Two, I wanted the wisdom of an older man. And three, I wanted the spirit of a godly man. And I'm so glad at that early age I made that decision because I've had a lot of reason not to do or be any of those things. People often say the church hurt me. You know what? Welcome to church. Uh, The reason church hurts you is because people are there. And wherever there are people, there is conflict. And where there is conflict, there is pain. And thank God we have a word that can help us get through that conflict and deal with it. And so if you've been betrayed, you know, who hasn't been betrayed? And I knew all that was coming my way. And so I'm glad I made a decision in the cool light of day that no matter what, I want to be 50 years of age in good health. I want to have wisdom beyond my years and I want to be better, not bitter. Every one of us can be bitter about something, but it's a choice to choose to use those moments and make yourself a better person, not a bitter person. And uh, I love being at Winter Project this year and seeing these young men and women jumping up and down and dancing around. It was fantastic. And I found myself getting involved. I was in the praise pit. I was up here last night just jumping up and down, having the time of my life. I thought, man, I remember doing this as a teenager. 
Wow, and here I am as a 49-year-old, six months off 50, doing the same thing with the same passion. See, it's not just about being around, it's about making a difference and being effective. It's about standing firm and loving well. And in order for us to do that, we need to make a pre-decision just like Daniel, because Daniel resolved. He resolved in his heart. And uh, he was not only courageous, but he was also courteous. We see that he asked for permission. He said, hey, hey, do you mind if, if, if we just try this thing? See, there's some wisdom that Daniel uses. It's not just about being legalistic. It's not about forcing yourself or imposing yourself on people. It's about being courageous, but also courteous. And we must make a decision when it comes to what it is that we're going to be part of or not. Number three, when it comes to standing firm, and loving well, we need to be prepared to be tested. Why? Because culture will always test you. Culture always creates a confrontation or conflict. Whether you like it or not, it's coming your way. You can choose to be the nicest person on the planet, but it's coming your way. A test is always around the corner. Your faith is going to be tested by something or someone. And if you find yourself not ready for it, then you're going to be able to stand in that day of testing. And that's why we need to equip ourselves with the Word of God. And again, that's why we come to church and that's why we read the Bible in order to stand in those moments. Too many people just give up too quickly. As I was standing on stage with our young people, I thought back to my teenage years. And the people that stood in meetings just like that, hands in the air, worshipping Jesus, saying, I'll serve you all the days of my life. But they're just not around anymore. And my heart's cry and prayer for every one of our young people is that in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, there'll be people not just in church, but being effective and making a difference in the world that God has placed them. Amen. The book of Daniel goes from one test to another test. And we're going to look at some of those over the next few weeks. And when culture shifts, you and I need to respond in the right way. We need to respond in the right way when tests come. See, what happens when tests come, we often don't know it's a test and we just start blaming people as if that shouldn't have happened. But we have to understand that tests are inevitable. 2016 for us as a church was one of those testing times. I found myself with a blood infection and almost lost my life through that. And here we are two years later. And honestly, I still don't have any answers as to why that happened. But it does fit nicely in the testing of our faith category. And when you put it in the testing of faith, I think, what well, if it's about my testing of my faith and I'm just going to pass that test? And we have an opportunity just to come through it with a smile on our face. We have an opportunity to come up with a, with a bounce in our step. We come through it by just continue doing what it is that we've done before with, with undiminished passion because we're going to be tested. And every one of us is. But if we start looking for answers that aren't, we're not going to get answers for, and if we just start um, wondering why this happened or, or that's not fair, we're going to miss what God has for us. Like I've said before, the goal is not to be right so much as it is to be effective. And Daniel and his friends 
teach us how to do this well. But there's one other who teaches us how to do it even better. And that's Jesus. Jesus lived in a culture much like our culture today and uh, with its little differences. But Jesus modelled how we can effectively stand firm in our faith, but love well. And it can really be summarised in two words. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is, two words. In order for us to stand firm and to love well in a culture of compromise, we need to operate out of the same spirit that Jesus, Jesus operated, and that is grace and truth. But notice the order. It's always grace first. In other words, you need to connect with people before you correct people. It's grace first. And Jesus did this so, so well. You'll see example after example after example after example in the Gospels. There was this man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a little guy and, and uh, he'd heard Jesus was coming through town and he thought, I want to get a glimpse of Jesus. And so he climbs up a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus and Jesus sees him. And uh, th this man was a, was, a, was a known man. He was a wealthy man. He was a tax collector and tax collectors didn't have a good reputation. And so Jesus stops and says, hey, uh, I'm going to come around your house today, which is kind of like, you know, just invites himself around to this man's house. And the people watching on were just really annoyed with Jesus because you know, they were saying, well, don't they know who he is? He's a sinner. Don't, don't they recognise who this man is? And, and anyway, comes down the tree and, and Zacchaeus takes Jesus into his house. Now, what was said in that house, we don't know because it's not recorded in Scripture. But this is what we do know that within a period of time of Jesus making a connection with this man, this man who had a reputation of being stingy and harsh and really tight with his money, came out just being generous and giving all his money away. Yeah. Yeah. Something took place in the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus that actually confronted an issue in his life and it changed him to the point of him being generous. But it started with connection. It started with, hey, going, mate. How about we do dinner? It didn't start with correction, but it started with connection. Another great example as a band come up, that'd be great, is when we see Jesus just doing His normal thing and all these religious people came around with a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery and they throw this woman at the feet of Jesus and just share with Jesus that this woman has been found in adultery. And it always fascinates me that this woman who'd been found in the act of adultery, that, you know, you can't have adultery without another person. But for whatever reason, the other person was not bought. You see, this whole moment was a setup. It, it was a setup. And Jesus just looks at the situation, again, operating out of grace and truth. He just begins to bend down and ride in the sand. Now, again, much like the discussion that he had with Zacchaeus, it's not recorded what he wrote in the sand. Maybe Jesus was just having one of those moments where he just needed to collect his thoughts. 
And maybe he's just doodling. Who knows? You ever done that? You just don't know quite what to say or do, so you just find yourself doodling on a bit of paper. Maybe he's just doing that. Who knows? Maybe he's just under his breath saying, Father, I need your wisdom. Nice dog. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But then he says this. He says, hey, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And it's amazing. One by one, oldest to youngest, they began to leave. Now again, we don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand, but maybe, just maybe, he was writing the names of their mistresses, Martha. And the oldest guy there, John, he's like, oh, Martha. <laughs> just gets his Michael Jackson on, he's gone. Bob's sitting there thinking, what's John gone? Where's John gone? So Bob looks down at what Jesus is writing. He writes, Mary. Bob's gone. In fact, five of them went then because every other girl was named Mary back then. So just <laughs> lots of, just something about Mary. I don't know, just lots of Marys. Lots of Marys. Meredith. Guy goes until it's just Jesus and this woman standing there. How do you stand firm and yet at the same time love well? Do what Jesus did. He looks at this woman. He says, where are your accusers? And she's like, I don't know. Bob's gone. John's gone. They're all gone. And Jesus says these amazing words. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Those words can be summarized with one word, grace. How do you affect a culture? With grace. But he doesn't leave it there. He follows up the grace comment with this. Now go and sin no more. Truth. Connection. I no longer condemn you. I think the woman would be feeling pretty grateful and connected at that moment. But then correction. Don't do it again. See, God has a standard and his standard works. God's not a party pooper. God just has a standard because His standard and His ways work. And if you follow His ways, it's, you're going to have the best life possible. That's why He wants you to do things a certain way because He wants you to have the best life possible. He says, don't, don't do this again. You've seen the embarrassment it's caused you. You've seen the pain it's caused you. You've seen the hurt it's caused you. Jesus is not condemning her. He's trying to help her. He's saying there's a better way. We live in a funky culture today with lots of ideologies out there. And we have to model like Jesus did, grace and truth. And show them there's a better way, not a religious right way, 
but a way that's kind and caring. That's what Jesus did. He said, there's a better way. We have a precious young lady in our church. Her name's Tiff. Love her dearly. She's one of our interns this year. And uh, she's a real delight. If you don't know Tiff, you need to get to know her. She's awesome. And uh, she had a friendship with a young girl by the name of Carly. And Carly had a gap year and so went to Canada. And uh, this was all before we even knew Tiff or Carly. In the year that uh, Carly was in Canada, Tiff ended up coming to Victory Church. We got to know her. She's part of our youth team and just a delight, as I've already mentioned. But uh, her friend Carly was in Canada and, and uh, noticed some changes in Tiff. And Tiff said, uh, just have a look at our Instagram if you want to know more about our church. Pointed her to social media. She started looking at all the stories and all the funky things that are happening in Victory Church. And she said, uh, we, we have a podcast too. You can listen to some of the messages. And so Carly in Canada starts listening to the messages. And then her time in Canada recently came to an end. And she said, I, I, I can't wait to get to Victory Church. I feel, I feel like I, I'm already a part of it. And it was only about a month ago, give or take, that Carly stepped into church for the first time Came a few weeks. Unfortunately, I wasn't here, so I kept, you know, kind of missing each other. But I heard that she was coming when I was going to be away. And I don't know if you remember this, but in my video, welcome to everyone, knowing that we were going to be away and knowing that Carly was going to be there, I gave a little bit of a shout out to Carly. He said, hey, Carly from Canada, I love you. Great to have you with us this morning. Didn't even really know her. I hadn't met her yet. And it's an absolute delight to have met her finally. But it was only just recently that Carly responded to Jesus. And I'm so grateful for that. And so Carly, welcome to the family. So good. And that little story contains, contains so much grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Like I've said before, this culture we live in, it's not ideal. But what God is asking us to do is not impossible. With His help, will you stand with, 